Okay, there we go. Thank you. All right, it's always a tough assignment to speak after such a delicious meal. Um, gonna do what I can. Uh, that that song service that didn't get your energy going. Those uh, some some great songs. Hopefully, we'll keep that going right here. I won't fall asleep if you guys don't. Okay, let's uh, let's make a deal on that. All right, I want to get into. Uh, as I said in the, the last lesson, the more specifics, today, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're going to start with what I think is the most important point. If you didn't get the hint from the sermon, I don't think things are in a real good place right now, socially, culturally, uh, our understanding of the family. So many things are, have gone astray, and we've got to fix those, and those things have, have crept into the church. As I said, the church bears the influence of the world. Rather than us influencing them, they're influencing us. And so we've got all these issues that we have to address, and I think what we're about to talk about is the single most important. And I'll tell you at the end why it's the most important. But I want to go back to something I mentioned earlier, of, of the TV dad that was established. Uh, there was a time there was Father Knows Best, and there was Ward Cleaver, and uh, some of these people, some people in this room know what those names are, some do not. When I was a kid, they used to play those late at night, the, the classic TV shows. But it hit the, uh, the 70s or so, and Archie Bunker came around, and man... That was kind of the whole, the butt of the joke of the whole show is how dumb this man is. And, you know, he kind of browbeats his wife, but he's, he's just dumb as a rock. And then, of course, you come along and that, that keeps going. And there's still some honorable dads. And um, then you get to Homer Simpson. I mean, the whole show revolves around, like with Archie Bunker, this very dumb man and, and his, you know, he just donuts and beer and sports and you know, doesn't know hardly his kids' names, and I mean, all the, the, the typical American dad, and it's just gotten worse from there. There are very few role models that we see, and now you, you see, even in TV commercials, if you go home, you watch the football game, I don't know if the Titans are on or whatever's on today, see how many commercials depict a, a competent, smart husband and father, and see how many the, the wife has to come in and correct the, the husband, no, honey, you're doing it wrong, no, we don't do that, no, honey, let me show you how it's done right. I've got a very smart wife who corrects me, shows me some things all the time. I'm not against the idea, but when it goes always one direction of, man, this, this lady carrying this dumb husband, you start to get the message. And, and we, we have this culture that, that beats up on men, and the whole point of it is it's almost like having to fight a fight with your hands tied behind your back because well, you're not really allowed to stand up for yourself. You're not really allowed to be a man the way that God intended you to be a man. And then you lose the fight, and, and you are the dumb one, and you are the weak one, and you're all these things, and then you get made fun of for being dumb and weak because you weren't allowed to be a man. You weren't, you, we've got this culture that trains you not to be a man, and then you get mocked for not being a man. It's a lose-lose situation. But then we, we can get into where we internalize that, and we beat up on ourselves. And I wrote something a year or so ago, and I still get people who are mad at me about it. I just said, guys, you've got to stop saying, I don't deserve my wife. I know guys that, that just beat themselves up all the time. Oh, man, I don't know why she married me. You better figure out. Boy, you know, she's, she's just so much better than I am. Like, well, then how are you leading the family? You better get your act together. Now, you don't want a husband that comes in and is like, yeah, my wife's an idiot. I'm, I'm the real you know, star of the show here. That's not what I'm calling for. You need a good man who knows why his wife picked him, who says, you know what, this is what I bring to the table. Here's how I'm blessing her, and here's how she's blessing me, because we're one flesh. Not me being dragged along. But man, I'm telling you, I hear Christian men say this all the time. I don't deserve my wife. I, I just don't know why she said yes. What does she think when she hears that? And if you think, well, it, it's just fun humor. Why does the humor never go the other way? 
I have never heard uh, a man or a woman say, you know what, I, I don't deserve my husband. I'm really dragging him down. Boy, he could go get somebody better. We shouldn't joke like that. We, we, we shouldn't think in those ways. In fact, last week when I was uh, speaking at another congregation, we were in between um, uh, lessons, and I, I was speaking to this older lady, and I said, i, I got to go call home. I mean, Allison was home with all four kids by herself. Figure it was a little hectic, so I just wanted to check in. I said, I'm going to go you know, give my wife a call. She said, oh, you got to check in with the boss, don't you? She's not my boss. She's a lovely woman. She's not my boss. I don't walk in the house and say, I'm your boss either, but she's certainly not my boss. Or I've, I've even had family members say, oh yeah, Allison, she's got her hands full raising four kids and one big kid. Why do we talk like that? Again, have you ever heard it go the other way? Nobody has ever come to me and said, boy, Jack, you got your hands full with four kids and that one big kid, Allison, because the TV commercial says that she's got to carry me along because I'm you know, a dumb, bumbling idiot and I'm Homer Simpson. It doesn't work that way. And you go back to what we had the scripture reading, the, the young man did a, a good job of in 1 Corinthians 11:3, where it gives that headship. God the Father, Christ submitted to him, he's over the husband, who's over the wife. If you have that hierarchy, that's really important to joke about that and subvert that hierarchy and pretend, ah, you know, the husband's the idiot and she's really the star of the show. Not good. Bad things come out of that. And then we apply terms and we try and we see that it says headship, so we try and fit the worldly view of marriage into the biblical one, and, and compromise never works. You just end up with this hodgepodge that, that can't stand on its own two feet. And so we've come up with this term, servant leadership. You know, husbands, you need to be a servant leader. You should be a servant. You should be a leader. Both of those are important things. What they mean when they say servant leadership is, ask what your family wants and then do it to keep them happy. We have those terms, too. I, I hear that. I, I mentioned uh, we've got a couple folks who listen to the Think Deeper podcast. If you did, if you're a listener of that, a lot of things we talked about last Monday are going to be in this lesson. It's, it's going to be familiar stuff. One of those phrases I hate, the, the servant leadership phrase, is happy wife, happy life. Just keep her happy. Or even I had Christians tell me when I was going to get married, okay, you need to learn two phrases, yes, dear, and I'm sorry. Why? Why? I, if I do something wrong, I should absolutely apologize. If she does something wrong, she should apologize. But we've got this, this paradigm in which it's if, if I do something wrong, I should apologize. If she does something wrong, I'm supposed to apologize to her. That's not healthy. That doesn't make for a good relationship. That doesn't make for a, a, a mutual respect when we're being dishonest with each other. Happy wife, happy life means her, her emotions, her whims run the household. That is not healthy. That is not biblical. That, that idea of servant leadership, again, you should be a servant and a leader, but what they mean when they use that is not the same thing. It's not the biblical concept. We get all this kind of from a, a, we live in a culture where we vote on everything, right? And if we don't like what they're doing, we vote the bums out. We go, you know, throw them out and get another one in. We just, okay, it's up for, for debate. Well, some things just aren't. In a family, when it comes down to it, and we're going to get to the, the domineering thing that we've got to stay away from, but mo more of the time, the problem is the husband going, all right, well, what do you want? What do, what do the kids want? What? Are they going to get really mad at me if I say we've got to do X, Y, or Z? If I make a decision for the household, okay, well, I, I guess I'm going to do what they want. That's not what a leader's there for. That's not what God put a husband there for. That's not what God put a, a father there for. And, and so when we subvert all of this and we get into all this humor and all these jokes and all these side comments, oh, he's the big kid, oh, you, you got your hands full there, oh, you know, all those things that I'm, I'm talking about is undermining and subverting this headship. Well, you know where subverting male headship started? 
came out of the mouth of a serpent, okay? Uh, you look in Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve. Adam was supposed to, Adam was the one given the law in Genesis 2 before even Eve was even created. Adam was given the law, uh, very much clearly supposed to instruct her in the law because he had it when she was created. And notice when they get the curse given on them in Genesis 3, God you know, goes to the, the serpent for, for tempting and everything that was wrong with him, you're going to go on, on uh, your belly and eat the dust of the ground. With Eve, it was because you ate of the fruit. Adam ate of the fruit, but you know why he got punished? It wasn't because he ate of the fruit. You listened to the voice of your wife. It was, Adam, you should have known better. Adam, you were in charge here, and you didn't do your job. And that comes back around in 1 Timothy 2. Paul, Paul, uh, Paul calls on that to say, this is why we have male teaching in the church. It goes all the way back to that. Men need to stand up and say no when it's time to say no, and say yes when it's time to say yes, and get this right. But as I mentioned, so many of these things overlap. As I said, the church family and the real family, but when you look at the idea of leadership, there's a few roles in the Bible that God created. And as I, I studied this a year or two ago as I was preaching and teaching on it, they're all pretty much the exact same. They're the, what God expects from all of them, the, the parameters for them are the same. And so you've got husband and father, you have elder, and then you've got government. And these are all leadership structures. These are all hierarchies. And, and in all of them, at that hierarchy, that person answers to God so that God is, is who the, or, you know, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, the husband answers to Christ. The government in Romans 13, they answer to God. Uh, parents will answer for the souls of their children. And it says in Hebrews 13, elders will answer for the souls of their flock. God is that number one authority. He's, you are his representative, his delegate, his ambassador to the people under your authority. As a husband and father, that's a really big deal. If you have children, if, if you're a young guy in here and you think, oh, someday I might get married, pay attention. This is for you, too, because we need to get this right. When we don't get this right, a lot of things go wrong. Okay? You will answer to God for the souls of your wife and children. That's a really big deal. How many people had that impressed on them before they got married? Oh, by the way, at Judgment Day, God's going to ask you about her soul. And if you guys have any children, he's going to ask you about them, too. This is on you. Are you ready to take that on? I didn't get asked that. Now, we had Christian, you know, marriage counseling, premarital counseling. We don't really think in those terms of, wow, this is the role I'm taking on. Maybe if we thought in those terms, if both the husband and the wife knew that was the, the arrangement, we wouldn't be so casual about it. We wouldn't laugh about it and, and undermine it and pretend it's all kind of a big joke. We'd realize, we better get this right. We better understand this properly. So again, with all of those leadership roles, they answer to God. God uh, gives them jurisdiction, lets them make decisions, let them uh, do certain things. There are limitations. We don't have to obey the government when they tell us to sin. We don't have to obey the eldership if they go beyond their bounds and say, you know, you, you hear the, those like cultish ones where the elders say, all right, we need to see everybody's financial accounts to get, see everyone's giving enough. You don't have to obey that. It wouldn't be a sin to obey that, but you don't have to because they're overreaching their bounds. The same goes for parents, the same goes for, for husband and wife. There are bounds on the authority, but within those bounds, you've got to listen. Because one of the other things is, with all of them, you don't get to decide, well, if I like it, I'll follow it. We've kind of got this thing going in America, and now every four years somebody gets elected, and half of the country goes, well, that's not my president. Yeah, he is. Well, we, we, whether we want him to or not be, 
He is, because Romans 13 says, nobody comes to power without being appointed by God as his servant. His, his deacon really is the Greek word for it, that they are his minister, and he's, they have account to him. Now, if they're not good, they answer to him. That's up to him. He'll handle that. Don't worry about it. But on the other hand, you've got to submit to him. Nobody can say, it says in Romans 13, ah, I'm not going to submit. That's, that's not, I'm not really interested in that, that kind of leadership. We can see that with government. With elders, the same thing. If they are over the care of your souls and you say, you know what, they said I'm supposed to come to church on Sunday, but I don't think it's necessary. You don't get to decide for yourself. They have that jurisdiction. Uh, you know, obviously, we have the, the biblical precedent for Sunday worship, but there's a number of things elders can decide that you need to listen to. Well, the same goes for, for kids. Kids can't, you know, I can't tell uh, my kids, all right, guys, you know, to use the illustration I used before, we're not having ice cream, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they say, well, I really like ice cream. I don't like that ruling, so I'm, I love you. You're my dad. I respect you, but I'm not going to listen to that one. You don't get to do that. But when it comes to marriage, it's a little bit harder because the dynamic is so much more equal than parent-child or government citizen or, or elder uh, member because you've got two adults. That's why it's hard. That's why a wife is told to submit and a husband's told to lead as, as, and, and lay his life down for his wife as Christ did for the church. It's a hard dynamic to get right. But you still don't get to say, you know what, my husband decided this for the family. I don't like it. I'm not doing that. I've seen a number of Christian wives do that. Just say, well, that's the decision he made. It's not the one I would have made. Well, guess what? You're not submitting if you submit when you want to. Because then who is the real ruler in that family? Who's the real leader in that family? You are. You're leading yourself. You're saying, I don't have to. I'm, I'm my own thing. I will follow when I want to follow. Following when you want to follow is not following. Okay? And so husbands are given this role, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, it comes up a number of times, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, we just read it. And it matters because leadership creates culture. Leadership determines the culture of an area. Leadership creates the culture in America because it, it tells a country what is encouraged, what is allowed, and what is not allowed. Well, we live in this time of lawlessness where basically you can go do all kinds of evil things that you shouldn't be allowed to do because we have a government that just allows it, and sometimes even encourages it. You can go burn a city down, and you'll get out of jail scot-free. That's what leadership does, is it tells people, here's the, the spectrum of what's allowed and what's not allowed. The same thing happens in a church. When an eldership really uh, has the finger on the pulse of the people and can tell them, hey, here's what's encouraged, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed, and here's what's required, you start having a church culture, and people realize, if I'm going to be a part of this, I've got to fit with what they're setting. The same goes for a house. You're going to set the culture as husband and wife for your children, but the husband, you're going to set the culture for your home as to what's encouraged in your home, what is required in your home, what's allowed in your home, and what's not allowed in your home. You set that tone. Wives, your husband sets that tone. But there's going to be two temptations of men. I, want to, I already referenced it, but let's look at Genesis 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3 because there's a really interesting little phrase in there. that tells us all kinds of stuff. Uh, tells us uh, stuff about uh, the dynamic of the first family that really filters into every family that's ever existed, every husband and wife that's ever been married. As part of the curse, after they had sinned, after, as I mentioned, they, um, the blame was passed around, in Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a weird curse, okay? The pain in, in childbirth, yeah, that's, that's pretty familiar. Uh, that's, that's one that we can get our minds around pretty easy. Your desire for your, shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Well, that desire and rule, it's the same conversation that is had in the next chapter with Cain after he's angry about the, the sacrifice. If you look in uh, Genesis 4, 7, it says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Same term. Sin desired Cain. Sin got Cain because it got a hold of him and it controlled him. He let sin take over his life. You go back, it says, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. What's it saying? It's saying you're going to want to run the show. It says he will rule over you. And you don't get to do that. That's going to be a challenge that you are fighting and that women have fought for all time. But with men, there's going to be two temptations. One is going to be to dominate your wife and run right over her. Say, nope, I'm in charge. I'm making all the decisions. I'm not listening to you. I get to do what I want. The other is going to be to be passive, to do what Adam did in the first place and say, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever you say, honey. It's going to be a servant leader. Oh, well, what do you want? Okay, well, you're going to get really mad at me if I make this decision. Okay, well, I'll do it. Those are the two temptations of men. Every man is prone to one or the other. In our culture, I would say the latter, the, the passivity, is much worse of a temptation for most men. But the funny thing is, you know something we're all really good at is... Being, having one weakness and being really good at spotting the other weakness. That when there's two ditches, two sides of a pendulum, man, we can see the dangers of the other side of the pendulum just crystal clear, right? Man, if you're a, a, an overly passive husband, you can look at the domineering guy, wow, I would never do that. Well, that's great. What about you? What's, what's your problem? What, what do you need to work on? If you're the domineering husband, you can look at the passive husband like, wow, he lets his wife run right over him. I would never do that great, but what about you? And so for every man, I, I can't tell you which one you are, but you got to look at it and say, man, am I trying to run my wife over and just do things exactly the way I want to without any care for her? I mean, as, as all of these leadership roles are shepherding roles, and you've got to know your sheep. People are following you. You need to know them. You need to know what they need. You need to be in tune with them so they hear your voice and they follow. Domineering doesn't do that. But on the other hand, if you're a shepherd that goes, I don't know, sheep, where do you want to go? That doesn't work out that well either. And so you've got to, to see where your weakness is and work on being the kind of leader that God has called you to be, to being the kind of man God has called you to be. Because as we look at all this, we look at the responsibility of it, it's very easy to beat up on men. As I said earlier, we kind of tie their hands behind their back, then beat them up, then mock them for getting beaten up. There's an old trope about Mother's Day. The sermon is, man, mothers are the greatest. We love mothers. They mean so much to us. And you've got examples like Mary and Hannah and all these great women and Mothers are just incredible when you get to Father's Day. All right, dads, you got to step it up. We need dad step it up sermons. We need mom step it up sermons. We need moms are great sermons. We need dads are great sermons. These things are all true, but we gravitate towards that, that paradigm because that's, again, what the culture teaches us. Husbands, fathers, strong male leadership that does things the right way as I said at the start, this is the most important thing. If we get this right, there's a cascade effect where so many other things get right. Where we see so much going wrong in culture is because we don't have this right. And so if we're going to fix things, if we, we look at the world around us and go, man, how can things get better? If we're looking at the church and saying, man, we want the church to be strong for 
hundreds of years, what is it going to take? It's going to take, number one, strong, courageous, godly men doing their job the way that God has called them to do it. So I've got four things we're going to go through briefly, because again, we just had lunch, it's the afternoon, feels like good nap time, um, so I'm going to try and get through it before we lose anybody. Four things men need to be, because again, and, and we, as I said, we did the podcast episode on this, and I made clear on that episode that if somebody was listening to it on their commute home from work, do not walk in the door and say, all right, honey, Bible says you've got to submit. I was listening to these guys, and they said that you've got... No, well, hold on. That doesn't work with anybody. If, if you are in any leadership, I mean, if, if the president walks in the room and he has to start telling people, I'm the president, you've got to listen to me. As I always say, if you have to tell people why they should listen to you, they're probably not going to. All right, you've got to build up that, that rapport. You've got to build the moral authority. And, and the wife, if your husband's not that, we'll get to tomorrow night to your role. You don't just get to go, yeah, he hasn't done a good enough job, so I'm not going to follow. That's not your call. You don't get to make that call. But we'll talk about that tomorrow night. For men, if you want to be followed and you want to be joyfully followed, you want them to want to follow you, you want to, to set the, the tone for your house in the right way, there's four things. Number one, we need men who are virtuous. We need men who are virtuous. Titus chapter 1, we've got the, the qualifications for elders. 1 Timothy 3 as well. Let's just take a look at that briefly in Titus 1. Both of the elder qualifications we have, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, start with the same qualification. Now, you might say, well, I'm not an elder. Well, you don't have to be. This is a good starting point. This is a good list for every Christian man to look at and say, you know what, even if I can't ever hit all of these things, and if I'm never going to be an elder, that's still a pretty good list of characteristics for a man to have. And so as the head of your house, or even just if you're a single man, pretty good list of qualities and characteristics to pursue. And so uh, as he starts giving Titus this list in Titus 1 verse 6, namely, if any man be above reproach. Why above reproach? And again, uh, both lists start with that, above reproach. It means that this is a guy with a spectacular reputation. That there's nothing that if you say, hey, this guy's going to lead our church, nobody goes, oh, wow, mm, that guy? I've heard uh, stories from, from fellow preachers where uh, they met somebody and said, oh, yeah, I go to, you know, I, I preach for such and such church Christ. Oh, you guys, you got, you know, so-and-so is your elder. Said, yeah, yeah, he's one of our elders. Like, well, I'm never coming to your church. Why? Well, because I work with him. Not great. Not great. Above reproach is, is in this list for a reason because you have to have that moral authority. You've got to be able to say, I'm not calling you to do anything that I won't do. That if I'm going to set the tone for this house and say, as we read earlier, Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you're not doing it, why is anybody going to follow you doing it? You can't follow or you can't lead people where you're not going. So you've got to be a virtuous man. You think about David, and it's very interesting when you break down just kind of frame by frame David's life, the different stories that, that go on. And he goes through some tough times. You know, he, he slays Goliath, but then Saul comes after him, and it's, it's a lot of uh, being on the run, a lot of difficulty. A lot of the Psalms came from that, of just praying that God would deliver him from those tough times. And he did, and then he comes to power, and everything's going great until he goes for a stroll on the roof one night. Bathsheba happens. The attempted lie to cover it up happens. That doesn't work, so the murder to cover it up happens. All of those, the, the, the bad effects that come from that, and if you look at the rest of David's life after that, the rest of it is in turmoil. The rest of his life, there are problem after problem after problem. His own family starts falling apart. Absalom, his son, stages a coup and, and chases him out of Jerusalem. 
when uh, it comes time for David to die, Solomon, his own son, has to assassinate some of his step-siblings or his half-siblings because there's infighting in the family. David's family falls apart because David lost his moral authority as the leader of the family. It's a really big deal. It matters that, that you're, you can tell your family, follow where I'm going. We have a time where that's a really easy thing. Of if, if you're not in the Bible, but you're telling your family, all right, we've got to go to church, we've got to be Christians, well, they're going to know. If you don't have a prayer life, they're going to know. More than anything, I brought this up in the, the lesson earlier, I think the stats are over 70% of Christian men will look at pornography every month. I'm not a statistician. I can look in a room this size. That's a problem somewhere in this room. I'm not going to point to anybody. If it's you, you know it's you. You don't have moral authority. You don't have the ability to tell your wife, hey, this is how it's going to be in our house because you've lost the moral authority. You're giving it up because of this sin in your life. Get rid of that sin if you want to be respected. You have to establish the virtue in your own life. And as we talk about these things, it's not perfection. Nobody's called to be a perfect husband and father because you can't be. It's not possible. So what is it calling you to do? It's calling you to dedication to improvement, to saying, I'm not going to have anything that compromises my moral authority. I'm going to try and grow. I'm going to try and overcome the things that would compromise my moral authority. And then number two, I'm going to be honest when I fall short. I'm going to own it. I'm going to confess it. That's what 1 John 1 is talking about. When he talks about walking in the light, even that doesn't mean not sinning. It says when we sin, we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us. As the head of your house, own it. Say you're sorry when, you're, when you should. That whole, well, tell your wife you're sorry. No, don't just say you're sorry if you didn't do anything wrong. If you did something wrong, you've got to be the first guy to say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. That's where moral credibility comes from, is when you're willing to say it and call yourself out and push yourself to a standard ahead of anybody else. If you're calling people to a standard you're not living, people aren't going to follow. Number one, be virtuous. Number two, be competent. Look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22. I love the Proverbs more and more all the time because there's so many of these practical, nitty-gritty, real-life details that sometimes we just don't get to. And when you read the Proverbs, they're all there. This is all inspired scripture about your life, about your marriage, about your politics, about your money, about your work, about what you do from Monday to Saturday. Christianity is not just about your Sundays. It's about everything in your life and God governing everything in your life. And Proverbs shows us how that works in so many ways. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Number one, you need to be virtuous. Number two, you need to be competent. You need to know what you bring to the table. As I, I said before that, well, I don't know why my wife married me. Figure it out. Figure out what it is that she needs from you, that you're bringing to the table, that she sees in you, and not so you can parade around and go, yep, I'm, I'm the greatest husband in the world, but you, so you can say, you know what? I'm blessing my family by putting food on the table, a roof over their head. I'm leading them spiritually. I, I'm, again, I'm being morally virtuous. I'm doing what I need to do to make sure my family's in the right place. Be competent. Do a good job. Work hard. As he says, a man skilled in his work. You know what? Most of us aren't going to be millionaire football players. Most of us are not going to be Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any of those guys. You don't have to be. You need to work hard at what you've been given so that you can show and that you have something to show for it. I'm, uh, uh, I mentioned, I think earlier, I'm from Denver, Colorado area. Uh, if you're a college football fan at all, that is now the center of the sports world. We have Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, who was an NFL Hall of Famer and is now coaching college football. 
quite a game last night. I'm not going to go, I, I could digress uh, pretty far down that road. But he showed up, and there's, there's a swagger. He's, he's arrogant. He's a little too far to the competence or confidence side. But I know it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable when he comes in and says, we're going to be good, we're going to be, and he just has this, this, again, this confidence where he comes in and says, this is how it's going to be. And in fact, he came, they were the worst team in the country last year, and he came in and immediately told some of the players, you're not going to make the team, you better be making other plans. And people, I mean, it, it was controversial. He, people got really mad at him. He said, well, look, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. I'm not going to tell you you're good enough. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to sugarcoat it that you're good enough. You're not. If you work hard and you get good enough, you get to stay. But if you're not, you're out of here. Confidence. He was looking for confidence. He was calling people to be competent. And people looked at that and said, that's so mean. Now, we need competent men because we've got to get a job done. For him, he's trying to win football games. We're trying to get family members to follow Jesus. We're trying to get our church family to be strong. We're trying to get the lost to see that there's something beautiful about Christianity can't do that if we're not competent. If we're the kind of guys where it's, you know, well, what do you bring to the table? How do you bless your wife? I oh, don't know. No, you need to say, this is what I'm good at. This is where I uh, bring something to the table. So we need virtuous men. We need competent men. We need courageous men. For the sake of time, we're not going to go there, but I'll recount in Numbers 13 and 14, the 12 spies. It's time for Israel. They've come out of Egypt. Time to go into the promised land. And they come back and 10 of them go, Let's go back to Egypt. We're all going to die there. They're giants. They're too big. We can't handle them. No good. No courage. Only two of them said, We're, we can handle this. We've got God on our side. Let's go take the land. Those two got to go in. Those ten and everybody who listened to them, everybody in Israel, didn't get to go into the promised land. The funny thing is when you chase that story out about the giants and they didn't want to go into the land because of the giants. I'm not a big fan of fighting giants if I had the opportunity either, but they had God on their side. When you follow that into the story of David, you know what David did? Number one, he killed a giant, and you trace it back. This is the same lineage. These are the guys that they were afraid to fight. David, the kid, comes and says, why are we letting this guy trash talk us? We've got God on our side. Let's take him down. David kills Goliath, and then as David becomes king, he inspires more men, the, his mighty men of David. You know what they started doing? They started going around killing all the giants. They were still left over from all those years ago. They were afraid to fight him. But because you had one courageous man who said, I'm not worried about a giant. I've got this. I've got God on my side. And he put the, the slingshot and the rock in his head. Look at how much courage he inspired. How many giants were slain because one guy stood up and said, we can do this. He was courageous. He took a stand. Ten spies went home cowering in their tents and lived the rest of their days wandering in the wilderness without a home. David took out the giant, led other people to take out the giant as well. You look in the New Testament, you've got the Great Commission and, and the courage that it took for those guys to take it out. And the contrast between that and Peter who said three times, I don't know him. Peter got courage in a hurry. Again, as I said in the sermon, we're here because of the promise to Abraham. We're here because Peter and, and company got courageous and said, I don't care if you kill me, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Courage goes a long way. Now, courage for you and me, we might not be faced with a sword, we might not be faced with a giant, we might not be faced with death and persecution, any of those things. Courage for you might be, your wife gets really mad at you for making the decision that you know you're supposed to make. You got the courage to hold it up. Your, your daughter, you tell her, you're not leaving the house dressed like that, honey. Go, we're, we're getting you some clothes to fit. She's going to throw a fit. She's not going to be happy with you. You got the courage to do it. Courage is saying, you know what, it's really awkward to try and start a, a nightly family devotional. We've never done it before. Give it a try. Just do it. If, if that's not a habit in your house, if you're married, if you have children, if you don't have children, 
sit down with your spouse, if you got kids with them there too, read some Bible verses, talk about it, pray 15 minutes every night. One of the best things you could do, but it's hard to start if you haven't done it. Well, you got the courage or not. And have that courage and do it, it will change your life. We need virtuous men, we need competent men, we need courageous men. Finally, we need consistent men. We need men that you can count on. Somebody that's going to be there, somebody that you know what their response is going to be, you know what their values are, you know just who they are. We looked at Ephesians 4 earlier and it talked about growing to maturity and it said the reason we need to grow to maturity is so we're not like children, we're not tossed about uh, by every wind of doctrine so that you know, when something comes up in life, we, we don't know where we stand. No, strong men set the tone for their home by saying this is who we are. This is how we act. When I was a kid, I played hockey in uh, Colorado. Again, not exactly the Bible Belt, but then again, they have this here. They scheduled a lot of games on Sundays, and especially the higher competition level you went to, the more games there were on Sunday. And so as, as a little kid, when I was eight or nine, we had one or two a year. And, you know, at first, my dad hadn't been a Christian very long. We, we went to those. We'd skip a Sunday night worship. And it got to a point after two or three of those, he said, well, we're not doing that anymore. He had the courage to say, I'm sorry, son, I know you love your team, you don't get to play on Sundays, okay? I mean, if it was between worship services, okay, we'd go to those, but Sunday night, Sunday morning, you're not going to play. Well, it got to the point, my brother ended up being a very high-end player, uh, playing national championship tournaments, stuff like that, and the family would spend money to go out to California or New York or whatever to go to these national tournaments, and there were times where the playoff game at nationals, where you've traveled across country, was Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. There was no question in the family's mind. There was no, I mean, the, the, my, I remember my brother's teammates, parents of my brother's teammates. My brother was the best player on the team. People coming and saying, one time, guys, just, he can skip church this one time, can't he? No. My dad, the consistent head of the house, said no. Because if it's the one time that it comes up against God, what does that tell God? Okay, this thing's more important than you. Nothing else is, but this one thing is. He had the consistency to say, we just don't do that. Everybody there learned from it. We uh, were actually, it was the neatest, one of the neatest things that ever happened to me. My brother and I got an email last year from a, an old teammate we hadn't talked to in years. Said, you know what, I'm, I'm getting married, settling down, um, and really I've been studying the Bible more, trying to go to church, and I just remembered, you guys were always at church. You guys were always in the Bible. Your family was that way. Because my dad made that decision. We, we studied the Bible with this kid over the internet every Friday uh, morning because my dad said, we're not going to skip church. It's incredible. I mean, it, it brings a tear to my eye to think the impact that he had that when I was that kid whining, going, come on, Dad, let me play the game, he said no, and now this kid is being saved because his consistency. That's what a good man can do. That's what that, that making that courageous, consistent decision can look like. This stuff sounds objectionable. Male headship, you read that verse in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that the, the man is the head of the woman, there's a lot of people in the world that rage against that. There's a lot of Christians, as I said earlier, they, they get mad when we talk about that on our podcast or our articles or whatever, that they don't like this. Feminism has really gotten into the brains of Christians. It doesn't work this way. This is how God designed it. This is how it has to work. Because here's why. As I mentioned at the start, this is the most important thing that I'm going to talk about this week. Because when we've got all these things we're talking about needing to fix in the church and in culture and in the home... When you're going to fix anything, you know what the first thing you have to look at is? Who's responsible for fixing it? Who's responsible for fixing it is the person that's ultimately going to give the answer for it. Who's ultimately going to give the answer for it? As we already said, it's going to be the husband. It's going to be the father. He's going to be the one that stands before God and explains why, why it was okay to skip church for the sporting event. 
why it was okay to not take a stand to your wife or to your daughter or to, to not be consistent or, or to have the porn problem or to, any of those things, he's got to answer to God in ways that nobody else in the family does. He'd better be a virtuous, competent, courageous, consistent man so he can do that. The other thing is, uh, to use one more sports illustration, I promise I won't keep doing that all week, but it's just on the brain. There's a lot of times where you'll see a coach, not a great coach, and, and the, the general manager will get involved, the owner will get involved, and say, well, we're going to have somebody else call the plays. I'm sorry, if you're a coach, you're going to get fired if the team loses a bunch of games. You might as well go down with the ship doing it your way. If the family, if you're going to be the one standing before God giving answers, why on earth would you let somebody else call the shots? If you're going to be the one that has to explain the, the rationale behind the decision and your explanation is, I don't know, I just let them pick. I don't know, I got outvoted. I don't know, that's what my wife wanted to do. Not a good answer. You need to be able to stand behind the answer you give God and say, we chose that for this reason because you're a virtuous, courageous, competent, consistent Christian man. That's why this is so important. That's why we have to get this right. And when we get this right, and, and as I said, we do a lot of beating up on men. I don't want this to be a beating up on men thing because the thing about it is we're talking about the responsibilities. The responsibilities come with rights. What we've done is the, the feminists want all the rights of male headship, but they don't want any of the responsibilities. When the buck stops, when it comes time, there's a bump in the night and somebody's got to get up and see if somebody's breaking in, uh, they don't want, you know, they don't want to go do that job, right? They want the rights, they don't want the responsibilities. So we've given men the responsibilities and none of the rights. You get the right of leadership. You get the right of respect. You get the right of, of the honor that comes with being this honorable man if you take the responsibility. The rest of us, uh, you know, children, and especially if you're a wife, give your husband the honor that's due. Do not treat him like a child. Do not let anybody call you the boss. Do not go for that garbage that the world throws at us in this, this topic. No, instead, we need to give men the honor and tell them this is something to strive for, and if you do, you will be appreciated more than anything. Not, we're gonna, we need you to work really hard, and then we're going to make fun of you. No. They're, the honor has to come with it as well. And so for the, the men that are virtuous, competent, courageous, consistent Christian men, God bless you. Keep it up. Stay strong. If you're somebody looking at that saying, i got to improve, do it. That's the first step. That's, that's all it takes is say, I, which of those do I need to become? Virtuous, competent, consistent, courageous. Be one of those, and you'll get there. If you're a young man and you're mar early married, not married, want to get married someday, look at those and say, how can I be that? And how can I find a woman who will help me be that and honor me for being that? That's how we fix so many of these problems. As always, the invitation is extended. If you're not a Christian, that's the, the first and foremost thing that you have to get right with God is to take Jesus as Lord, repent of your sins, confess Him, be baptized. I think those that stay over after lunch are usually the, the uh, pretty solid Christian crowd, and so I'm just going to make an appeal. If you are that father, and there's something that compromises your moral authority, as I said this morning, you do not have to come down in front of everybody. You need to tell somebody. You need to get prayers. You need to go to an elder. You need to go to a preacher. You need to talk to somebody that will help you out of it. If, if you're a wife and you say, you know what, I've really done a bad job and undermined my husband, Make that right. Again, you can come forward, but more than anything, whether up here or anywhere else, talk to somebody. Repent, confess a sin, get it right with God. If it's one of those things, if it's anything else, the invitation's always extended as we stand and sing. Have you been to